taking place. Have you ever really wanted answers to something? We tend to go in a bit of a, of, of, a, of a pattern when we want an answer. It starts out by we sit on the couch wondering about something. We say, gee, I wonder if I should get this looked at. I wonder if I should think about this a little bit more deeply. And then as our questioning becomes more serious, we turn to Google, we turn to WebMD, we do uh, self-diagnoses, and, and we look for answers that way. Oftentimes, um, it's not the best way to go about it. And then as things get a little bit more serious, we decide maybe we need some professional help, and so we turn to, to doctors, to lawyers, maybe to pastors, to professional counselors, and then when even that doesn't seem to give us the answers, the peace of mind that we really want, then we tend to turn to God. We start to pray about it. We start to really um, lean into him. We might have been praying about it from the get-go, but we really start to seek after him saying, I don't know what's going on. God, you've got to do something about this. But why do we try to exhaust all those earthly uh, sources before turning to God? You know, deep down inside, we must know that he knows the answers or else we wouldn't turn to him in the end at all. But often that's exactly what we do. And as we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be talking about Judah's search for an answer to their horrible situation. See, the year was about 750 B.C. Uh, to give you some context, this is the, about the time of the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, somewhere in that history of Israel, um, the kingdom had split. So we have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah is the southern kingdom, and Isaiah is writing to Judah. Um, they had some really bad kings. Uh, kings who weren't following the Lord, kings who uh, were trusting in themselves, not in God. And one of their bad kings was King Ahaz. And the people were really worried about the dominant empire of the day, and that was the Assyrians. The Assyrians were kind of the bullies of the day. They would come into a country, take over a country, and uh, the, the, the country of Judah was just fearful that they were next that they were going to be the people that would be taken over. And so was, there was this fear of what's to come, and yet they did what we tend to do. They relied on their, their human solutions first. Uh, they were counting on their military prowess. They were counting on these kings, even though they had a series of kings who we now look back and recognize as, as really bad kings. It got to the point that so many people wanted to trust in themselves and in, in their country that only a small remnant cried out to God for help. And that's where we pick up our story today. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. 
the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, back then, God's answer for Israel was a baby. God's answer for Israel, the split kingdom, Israel and Judah, was a baby. But it was a baby with some very special characteristics. And as I told the kids, uh, this Advent season, we're focusing on these names of God that we see in Isaiah 9, 6. They're actually called throne names. They're names that kings then would have... um, taken for themselves uh, names like warrior eagle, friend of the gods, etc., things to describe that king. But these throne names were given by God for his son. And so we lean into those this Advent season to find out what it means for us. You know, having a wonderful counselor was a really big deal. If you're in Israel situation, if you're in Judah wondering if the Assyrians are going to come in, having a wonderful counselor is a really big deal because he has answers. He has answers. Isaiah told of the answer that would come to Judah. It wouldn't be from military might, but it would be from a baby. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense but it's God's way. And one way to describe this baby would be wonderful counselor. And a counselor in those days wasn't about listening to problems. It was somebody who had the ability and the opportunity to give direction. Oftentimes, kings were called counselors. They made things happen. And not only will this baby make things happen, he will do it wonderfully. That word wonderful is very important too. In fact, two chapters later in Isaiah, we hear more about the insight for this counseling and how it will be so wonderful. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decision by what his eyes hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, hidden faithfulness the belt about his waist." Do you see the hope that's coming from this wonderful counselor? We live in a day when there are answers for everything. We can get advice from anywhere, um, not always good advice, but, but what this guy's going to do, what this baby's going to do, what this wonderful counselor, our Savior, is going to do isn't just give advice. He's going to offer God-breathed, God-breathed spirit-influenced knowledge about what needs to be done. This passage told us about that spirit that would guide him. It says it was 
of the Lord. It says it was a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge, a spirit of the fear of the Lord. And then in verse Three, it tells us more about that. We learn the results of what that spirit influence means for us. In the first part of verse three, it says his motivation is his delight in the fear of the Lord. He doesn't just know about the fear of the Lord. He delights in the fear of the Lord. And because of that, the rest of the verse tells us he has tremendous ability and integrity. He won't judge by what he sees. He won't judge by what he hears. He will judge by what he knows. And it says that's righteous and that's fair. And after you've lived year after year after year under a bad king, this is really great news. This is really great news. God's answer for Judah was going to be a baby. What he would say, what he decrees will be so good, so true, that it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and just the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. In other words, unlike every other human leader in history, this one is qualified to rule the world. Unlike every other leader in human history, Jesus is qualified to rule the world. And so we jump back into the context of Isaiah for a second. We know they are constantly fearing invasion by the Assyrians because their king Ahaz isn't doing a good job. And they hear about a wonderful counselor with these credentials. Think of the relief. Think of the excitement. Think of the joy that must have overtaken them. It's no wonder we sing, he rules the world with truth and grace. They want to declare that. They want to exclaim that because that's not their present experience. They look forward to that. They look forward to Jesus coming and ruling and reigning. When we sing that, we exclaim what this baby would one day do. When we sing that this year, we'll be singing about what that baby will one day do. God's plan for Israel was a baby. And yet, as I think about this, um, we have a baby. Laura and I have a baby but we do everything for him. He doesn't do anything for us. There's a lot of intrinsic value, intrinsic benefit, but he has yet to offer to prepare me a meal. <laughs> we always do that. The people of Judah would have recognized the incapability of a baby, but the message was about more than a baby. It was a lesson about a God. It was a lesson about God that is true forever. And so we move from looking at what was happening then to look at what's true about God from this Isaiah 9 passage. And that is that God wants people to experience his grace. God wants people to experience his grace. Now we need to understand how to keep this context. We want to really, uh, when you read a prophecy, it's really easy to take it and claim it for yourself, but we need to remember the context it was written in and understand it first for that audience before we bring it to ourselves. And so we really want to um, understand how to keep that context in that passage and find uh, this greater meaning. meaning. Um, the immediate context, of course, is for Judah specifically. It's not a message to us. 
but God saw fit for it to be in the Bible. So that means there is indeed something for us to get from it. And that last line of verse 7 is where we find it. Chapter 9, verse 7, the very last part, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It was all tied, all of this that he had laid out was tied to the zeal of the Lord. Now, Hebrew for zeal is a word I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try. But it is tied to the Arabic that literally means to turn red in the face. To turn red in the face. And we know what that's like. Think of the emotions we see building up on someone's face. Oftentimes, we see it in cartoons. Uh, Sometimes, depending on complexion, you can actually see it in a person. But it indicates an, an intensity. It indicates a passion. And it says, that is what will accomplish what's being promised here. An intense passion. Everything God does is a means to point people to himself. Everything God does is a means to point people to himself, to see his glory, to feel his grace. God is zealously seeking for people to experience his grace. Ray Ortland is a pastor in Nashville who has a fantastic commentary on Isaiah. I actually highly recommend it just for your own personal Bible study. It reads like a book. It's a great commentary. But in that, he says, God's passion is driving history toward the final triumph of grace. God's passion is driving history toward the final triumph of grace. And we see that clearly laid out here in Isaiah chapter 9. And we can say that, but let's not miss the grace component of that. Judah was lost. And Judah was lost because the people had turned from God. They weren't worshiping him. They weren't honoring him. They had king after king after king who dropped the ball. There was one king, Hezekiah, who we're told did pray to God. But he was just part of a long line of of other bad kings It was so bad, in fact, that we know this nation that was to be for his chosen people split to the north and to the south. So God stepped in. God stepped in and said he would do what only he could do. He was going to send a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an eternal father and a prince of peace who would rule and reign And he was willing to do that because God wants people to experience his grace. He doesn't want them stuck in that darkness. He doesn't want them stuck in the the doom and in the gloom of life. He doesn't want them stuck wondering if things will ever get better. God designed us to experience his grace, and that's exactly what he wants. And by reading this promise in Isaiah, we realize that he's putting that plan into motion. He's making that desire happen. So God's answer for Judah was found in a baby. God wants people to experience his grace. But now I want us to imagine that we have a VCR or a DVD player and we hit fast forward from here in Isaiah 9. We see the rest of the Old Testament quickly pass by. 
We see those 400 years of silence. We see uh, the birth of Christ. We see him grow up. We see him do miracles. We see him uh, be uh, arrested. We see him die on the cross. We see him rise again. We see the church begin. We keep going. We see European history. We see uh, the pilgrims coming to America. We see American history. Uh, and, then, and then soon we catch up to us walking into Yorkshire this morning. And we say, okay, well, what does this mean for us now? What does this mean for us now? I ask you if you've ever searched for an answer, if you've ever um, tried to Google, use WebMD, turn to a professional to get, a, get an answer to something in life. And this reminds us that our answer is found in a who. God's answer for you is found in a who. So often when we try to find answers, when we try to determine what needs to happen, we go with what, what do I do? We go with when, when will this get better? We go with how, how do I do it myself? We go with why, why is this happening to me? But God's answer for you is found in a who, and that who is Jesus Christ. It's the one who Isaiah says is the wonderful counselor. Literally, a person with a perfect plan. A person who knows what needs to be done. And so we find hope in a God who has a plan. If we threw you for a loop when we lit the Advent candle and said this stands for the wonderful counselor, here's the hope part. Hope in a God who has a plan. Shortly after Isaiah had prophesied all of this, another prophet came along. His name was Jeremiah. And one of the many things he said was, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. But again, we need to remember that context. We need to remember that context because your hope is not that God's going to give you prosperity. Your hope is not that you're not going to be harmed. Those were promised for Israel. It's not our promise to claim that as much as we like to put it on our coffee mugs and and, and on our walls. Your hope is in the fact that God sent his son and called him a wonderful counselor. Your hope is 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 in the fact that God knows the plans he has for you. Your hope is in the fact you have a God who makes plans a wonderful counselor who has his own plans for you. And you can test me on this. You can test me on this. Pick a Bible story, look it up. Then pick another one and look that up. Then pick another one, look that up. Pick another one, read that. Keep going until you find a situation where God didn't know what to do. You won't find one. God has a plan. He has a plan for you. And it's intricately tied to this wonderful Counselor. He knows what we need today. He knows what we need tomorrow. Our responsibility is to live like we have hope. It's to live like we believe we have a God with a plan. You say, but, but Dave, you don't know my situation. You don't know what's happening with me. My situation is different and all the stuff you're talking about today, yes, I believe it's true, just not true for me right here, right now. 
we need to realize a New Testament truth. It comes from uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Divine power is best displayed against the backdrop of human weakness. Divine power is best displayed against the backdrop of human weakness. Your weakness allows God's grace to shine even brighter. Live like that. Even back in Isaiah chapter 9, we hear of this darkness that has seen a great light. The divine power is best displayed against the backdrop of human weakness. And if that's true, then practically we need to live this out every single day. When we watch the news, we respond knowing we have a wonderful counselor, one who makes plans, one who makes perfect plans, whose plans won't be fouled up by whatever we're hearing. When we see people around us getting caught up in the drama of a world that isn't perfect, tell them that you have a savior who is coming back to make the world absolutely perfect. And when you feel your own situation is so dark that you just can't do it, remember that you don't have to because there is a who that Isaiah said would bring a bright light to Judah and through his plan for you and his gift of salvation, he brings brightness to your life too. God's answer for you is found in a who. And so this Advent season, as we focus on these names of our Savior, we remember that God had a plan for Israel, and that plan was a baby. We remember that God wants people to experience his grace, and he's extended that opportunity to you as well, because God's plan for you is found in a who. It's found in Jesus Christ, who is a wonderful counselor, who has plans who wants his divine power displayed against the backdrop of your human weakness. Christmas is a reminder that God's plan is taking place. Let's pray.